0: I don't know if you're like me, but for me there was this instinct that came upon me as I moved from being a kid to um, a youngish man, still a boy, but it was around middle school that this desire to belong became so intense and to belong to something worthwhile and to find my identity and to find myself in that belonging. For so many of us, Those years were like that there's this awakening to social realities that we've never quite Seen before to popularity to reputation To to gifts in people Weaknesses in people humor that people have intelligence that they have and and good looks or not good looks That people have to status and fashion to romantic attraction and to achievement in the midst of our peers All those categories kind of conspired upon me in that 6th, 7th grade year. And they all seemed to scream out, belong. Belong to something great. Let it be worth something. Don't be alone. Don't be a nerd. Don't be a loser. Belong to something and let it be great. Whether it was a girl or a circle of friends or being in a rock band or being part of a sports team, I wanted to be part of something. That I considered valuable. So that I would be defined. By that value. Of course at some time or another. I tasted all of those things. That I thought I longed to belong to. Cool friends. I had them. Sports team I was on it. A band I was in it. Girlfriends I had a couple. Most of the time getting dumped. By the end of each of those terms. And really by the grace of God. (laughs) And by the grace of God, my longing for belonging was never satisfied in those things. In his mercy, he never let it be satisfied fully. At times it would seem to work out, and then one way or another the Lord would allow something to happen that would let me feel the emptiness and the lack of peace in trying to find my identity in these people or these things of the world. Thank God for that. Thank God that my ultimate satisfaction could not be found in those things. Because if it had, if it so filled me up that I cared for nothing else... That would have ultimately meant a rejection of God, and it would have meant eternal death to me. But you know what? My desire, my instinct to want to belong, it was right. My desire to want to fit in to a community, it was, that in itself was not wrong. It was right to want to be part of something worthwhile. The problem is that I was so dead wrong in what was truly worthwhile and what true belonging meant. The truth was my idolatrous standards were far, far too low compared to what God had in mind for me. Like you sitting here today, it turns out that I was meant to belong to something so much more infinitely glorious and satisfying than anything this world could provide, whether it's the fallen world or the created world. I was made for a community of loved, defined, sourced in, and sustained by the very glory of of Almighty God. That's what this whole prayer is about. Today we finish this prayer for glory. Jesus will tell us that we're meant to belong and not just belong to something, we're meant to belong to what is infinitely worthy and beautiful and satisfying. And it's not us, it's Him. And once more we'll see that He will secure our belonging with this prayer. He will guarantee our belonging with this prayer to encourage us just before he pays for that belonging with his blood. I'm really excited about this passage. I also am aware of my weakness in being able to explain something that is so glorious. So I need God's help. So would you pray with me and uh, we'll pray for each other as well. Lord, what a gift to be able to see you in your word. But that's just it, Lord. To see you in your word is a gift. We can't make it happen. I can't make it happen. Because you're good. Because you're gracious. Because Jesus has paid with his blood for sight this morning. Because Jesus has paid with his blood for sight this morning. I pray that you would grant us sight. Allow us to see your glory. To behold it to taste it, and to be changed by it, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Last week, we unpacked Jesus praying for the apostles. He prayed that they would see the truth of God's glory in Jesus. He prayed that they would be kept safe by that truth so they could proclaim that truth to the world. There Jesus pled to his Father, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Essentially, we saw that what Jesus was praying was, Lord, set these men apart. But don't just set them apart. Set them apart in the truth. The truth of your word. The truth of your word about me. And they're set apart so that they can go into the world for God's service with that truth. Both committed to it, convinced about it, and proclaiming it. And we and call what Jesus means by truth as we kind of combed through the whole prayer last week. We, we talked about these glory words. This idea that the whole prayer is a, really a prayer for God's glory to be made known and seen. So these words, they speak of this great theme of God's glory. God's revelation of himself in Christ to go into the world through the apostles. God's glory is in the prayer. God's name is in the prayer. God's word is in the prayer. God's truth is in the prayer. But I I think they're all part of this complex of God's revelation that's supposed to go out into the world. They're all part of the same revelation of God unveiling words to describe what is being and what has been and what will be disclosed to these apostles so that they might disclose to the world the Son of God. It's critical that we see that these apostles are in and sent in truth. It's going to be critical for the rest of our prayer this morning that we're going to look at. So, so let's look at verses 20 through 24 now with that backdrop in mind. Jesus prays to the Father. I do not ask for these only, not just these apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. There is so much here. (laughs) Again, I, I think I told you guys last week. Kent Hughes in one of his commentaries said that Philip uh, well, I can't remember the name of the guy But he, he wrote 47 sermons on this passage I get through that and i'm just thinking I probably would need to write a, twice as many But here jesus focuses on this Well, I want us to focus first on on this theme that jesus prays for our oneness He's asking for oneness, right? Like that stands out to you, right? That they may be one he says it twice and he said it before a few verses earlier when he talked about the disciples that they would be kept in God's name so that they would be one. What does Jesus mean, one? What's he mean by this oneness? Well, I think the context tells us what oneness means. And the first thing I want to I come to us, I want to bring to us, is that I think oneness is a oneness in truth. What we just talked about. In a real sense, there's something that, that stands out in this in this prayer to me as I read it this time. In a real sense, there are only... There are only two groups of people Jesus prays for in this prayer. There's the apostles in that room with him. And there's everybody else. In one bin is this small group. And maybe it includes some of the other apostles who would see him rise. And, but but it, it certainly would include Paul, who later becomes one of the 12, I believe. But there is a focus on this 12. And... and there's this small bin with them and then millions and millions and millions of other people throughout the history of the world in the other bin. Do you see that? Jesus says, I, I not only pray for them, these guys I've been talking to for five chapters, but for those who will believe in me through their word. Who's that? That's everybody else throughout the history of the world so far. So these, there's two groups. There's about 12 guys and then, <laughs> you know, millions and millions and millions of other people. What's going on here? This is really important. The reason why Jesus does this is because the apostles are the foundation of the church. Ephesians 2 will tell us that in a moment. But I I want you to hear this. The apostles are are uniquely foundational for the church, for everyone that would come after them. In, In 1 John, the first chapter, this is what the apostle John, who is sitting at this table writing this gospel down, says in another one of his letters. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the father and which was made manifest to us. We saw him, John is saying, we touched him. We put our hands in his side. In John 15, Jesus says to these men, you also will bear witness. He says, the spirit's coming to bear witness of me. And then he says to them right after that, you will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. This never happened again in the history of the church, this group of people that were with Jesus from the beginning. Though we're all witnesses of Christ, in another sense, they're, they're unique. See, all of our witnessing, all of our witnesses authenticated by their eyewitness. They saw the risen Christ. They heard his words. They saw his miracle, his death. The things that we see by faith, they saw by sight, And once more, Jesus tells them in this upper room discourse earlier that the Holy Spirit will reveal to them the doctrines that they would teach in their letters. That he would be a voice to them to remind them of all that Jesus had said to them and to guide them into all truth and to reveal to them what is to come, including the meaning of the cross in order to glorify Jesus. Now, that's a lot of amazing words, but but practically, pragmatically, it does have an expression right here. The doctrines and the truths encapsulated in the New Testament are what we call the apostolic message of the cross. The Apostle Jude calls it the faith once and for all entrusted to the saints. Their testimony, again, it's, it's what you guys have heard this phrase, the apostolic message of the cross. What's my point of all this? Going back to ephesians 2 20 there paul says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles And the prophets with christ jesus himself the chief cornerstone Do you see this amazing statement the, the church's foundation is the apostolic witness the apostles? I believe that's the new testament the prophets. I believe that's the old testament That's the church's foundation Albert and andrew and john piper are not foundational <laughs> The apostles are. That's why teaching this Bible is so important for anybody who wants to teach Christianity. It's once and for all delivered to those men who delivered it to us. It's not an ongoing message that's going to add new and new things to change it. We don't have something new to bring you each Sunday. We don't have a Koran to say, you know what, they got it wrong before. Muhammad got, got something new and they blew it, but now we've got the real thing. We don't have a book of Mormon for Joseph Smith to say, you know, they thought it was wrong, but there's some stuff we got to add. It's okay, but we got to add and improve upon it. Do you see the logic of this, the blessing of this? What ground would we have to stand on? What hope could we have? What could we offer each other or offer the world if this Jesus was not enough? If Muhammad or Joseph Smith comes along centuries later and says, it's not enough and it's incomplete, and it's and it's it's wrong in some places. To that, the Apostle Paul says, there's not a, a new gospel coming, folks. It's once and for all delivered to the saints. And the implication of that for Paul is, if, if me, Paul, or an angel from heaven should come and bring to you a different gospel, a new, improved gospel, let them be accursed. Let them be anathema. Let them be bound to hell. This is the truth. It is not changing. And that's the gift we have. We have something solid to stand on. It's not going to shake around and change around through the centuries. Now, let me explain how I think this all relates to our oneness. In Jesus' prayer, oneness comes through seeing truth. I've tried to demonstrate that in different ways. This whole prayer is about seeing the glory of God, the truth of God, his word, his name, his truth. And just as oneness for the apostles in verse 11 looks like this. Listen to verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Why? So that they may be one. Even as we are one. Remember, his name is shorthand for all that God has revealed in Jesus. Now Jesus prays for our oneness in verse 21. And here he says that that oneness comes through the message that we believe. He will say in verse 23, the glory, now it's 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 the name, it's the glory, and now it's the name, it's the message, and now in verse 23, it's the glory that you have given me. That they may be one, even as we are one. It's It's the name that makes us one. It's the word that makes us one. It's the message that makes us one. It's the glory that we see that makes us one. In Jesus' prayer, you see, oneness is not achieved by pursuing oneness and coming alongside you and saying, Hey, hey, brother, be my buddy. If we start to do stuff together, we go rafting or we look at this book together. Can we be one? Oneness comes when we believe the message. When we're born into Christ, we're born, in a sense, into a family with each other. That's where oneness comes from. And so Jesus is not praying for oneness for his people simply for the sake of unity at all costs. It is a unity centered around the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. His worth displayed and cherished. When, if, if we begin to see unity as the goal itself. And not God's glory as the central goal of that union. Not knowing and cherishing God as the goal of that unity. We lose real unity. See the implication when we begin to see unity and togetherness itself at the expense of God's glory The expense of knowing him and seeing him and cherishing him. We begin to erode lose real lasting healing unity And we've seen this, right? We 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 see little bits in our own lives. And if we look over the the centuries We see so many churches die Because they lose the glory of god and his spirit won't countenance the way that they, they let go of his glory. 1,600 years ago, for many churches, it may have been losing the divinity of Christ. When there was a huge argument about that. 500 years ago, there was a big argument about justification by faith. And some churches were able to see his glory and, and others left it. 100 years ago, it, it was the trustworthiness of scripture itself. Recently, it, it, it may be the need for atonement. Whether or not that's real, God's wrath is real, whether the blood of Jesus is really what pays for us. Today, it may be the authority of God in our word, in his word to speak to our sexuality. Or it may be the authority of God to speak to our greed. As the health and wealth gospel centers itself not on God, but on you and your best life now, perhaps. Over the last century, many mainline Protestant churches have faded into thin impotent shells of their former selves because what they thought relevance and survival and potency would be was compromising the oneness that comes from the truth. And what many sad souls were left with was famously summed up a brilliant quote by theologian Helmut Niebuhr. He said this, this is what what, what, what's traditionally called liberal Protestantism, left a lot of people with. A God without wrath brings men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through a ministry of a Christ without a cross. A God without wrath brings men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through a ministry of a Christ without a cross. Entire denominations have lived and died over the issue of holding or letting go of God's truth. And I'm convinced that Jesus will eventually remove the lampstand of, of churches that leave the glory of his truth, his name, his word behind to seek compromise with the world. So brothers and sisters, oneness will not be served by compromise of his truth. We, we must stay committed to the apostolic message of the gospel that Jesus died for us because we're sinners deserving of his wrath. But because he laid down his life for us, we are saved by grace through faith. We must keep the gospel central. We must guard our hearts and each other in the truth. We must not be fooled into thinking, I, I think especially for young people, but really it can happen to all of us, but especially for young people who, who, who are tender and have strong hearts of mercy, want to fit in, want to belong. It's so tempting to want to just start to compromise and nickel and dime away. Things that the world finds unpalatable, in order to even well-intentionally serve the world the opposite's true we can't serve the world by compromising truth it's my first point that oneness comes in truth my second point though is, is sort of a converse statement on this that right doctrine right truth is not enough so point two this oneness is in the father's love this oneness is in the father's love oneness that jesus gives it leads to unity in love Not just a unity in truth. Not just a unity in in doctrine. Verse 21. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. we'll get to that. But I want to focus here on that they may be one, even as you, Father, in me, and I in you, that they may all be in us. In verse 23. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me. And loved them, and loved them even as you loved me. So, what what kind of oneness do Jesus and the Father share with us? It, it's a oneness of love, the oneness of love that they have for each other. They share with us. We're going to talk more about this at the end. It is not the easiest thing for me to grasp, but Lord willing, we can get our hands around it a little bit. So. The point is, our unity cannot be a dry theological unity. It is one that is so centered on the love of God for us and our hope in that love that we have to share it with one another, that we have to become unified with it one another. See this astounding truth in verse 23. Our unity, our oneness, it is centered on a message That tells us that we are loved by the Father even as Jesus. That we are loved by the Father even as He loves Jesus. That is who you are. You are loved by Him even as He loves His Son. These are Jesus' words, they're not my words. I'm not trying to talk you into something, folks. Many of us walk with a great limp because we don't see that very well. We can pray alongside with the prayer of Jesus that the Lord will convince us of that. I believe he will work to do that. There's another implication of that. When you look at a fellow believer, you are looking at someone loved by the Father, even as he loves Jesus. When you look at that brother or sister that's just difficult to get along with, that's not attractive to you, that's awkward and immature in your view, maybe that's hurt you in the past, you're looking at someone that's loved by the Father, even as he loves Jesus. Let that sink in. Doesn't that provoke in you a sense of wanting to honor them and respect them and treat them with kindness and tenderness and a special? I mean, what better what better category could you put someone in the universe in than your love by the father, even as he loves Jesus? Look around the room. There's no one here. Who is normal anymore? (laughs) I, I don't mean that as a criticism. Only because of God. Everybody in this room Is very special You are loved By the father even as jesus is loved by the father Our unity is not in our looks. It's not in our skin color. It's not in our political affiliation It's not in our tattoos our music choices our youth or our age. It's not in our temperaments It's not in our college education or our ged. It's not in our sin struggles or our sin victories. It's it's in the love of the Father through Jesus Christ that falls on each and every one of you. You know what's revolutionary for those of you who are married? Can you imagine waking up every day and looking at your husband and wife and just saying, honey, you are loved by the Father even as he loves Jesus. How that might, if you really let that sink in every day, and really pursued seeing that how that might affect your marriage. To see your spouse as the one loved by the Father, even as Jesus is loved. I think if we can't fight for that at home, we, we really don't have any business fighting for it anywhere else. We do and we will have conflicts with one another. They, they can become difficult. They are difficult, I know it. But, but we have no excuse if we're going to be obedient to God and honor the oneness that... He's bestowed upon us if we don't strive, if we don't govern our hearts to see each other this way, as those who are loved by God, even as he loves his son, and make that the first category by which we define one another. We have to do this if we're going to be a witness to the world. We have to do this if we're going to experience the oneness that we have. God doesn't stop being your father when you break fellowship with him, but it, it does drive the experience of familyhood. Our conflicts with one another don't end our unity of Christ, in Christ, but they do rob us of its experience. And so we're called to be at peace with one another, as far as it depends on us. And I know that it's not always an immediate solution to get that peace when things have broken down, but perhaps the most important first step you can take today in unity, that I can take today, that can restore that peace, that unity, is, is just to begin to ask myself, do I see that brother or sister as, as primarily someone that I'm in a conflict with or that I have disagreement with or bad past with, or do I see them as someone that father loves even as he loves his own son? Oh, Lord, help me. Number three, finally, we're called into a oneness that is a witness. We're called into a oneness that's a witness. This oneness leads to a unity of love that provokes the world. Andrew asked me this question yesterday. Do do we realize what's at stake in our unity? Verse 21, let's go back over it again. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. Verse 23, I in them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you have loved me. <clears throat> Excuse me. I could turn that thing off. Too late. Sorry about that. But just think about this. Just as unity without truth is destructive, and, and just as unity without love is really impossible to, to exist in, so, so also unity divorced from an eye towards mission. It suppresses God's glory. It, it, it veils who he is. It doesn't represent him because he's not selfish. He's not, he's not inward. He's, he's not stagnant. He, he cares about the world. The truth that we have received that makes us one, it, it tells us that God is love that he died for us because he is love. So we can't really be united functionally in that truth without the truth of who he is and his love for the world affecting us. Charles Spurgeon once famously said, I think I'm paraphrasing here, but you show me a Christian who doesn't care if anyone's going to heaven and I'll, I'll show you a Christian who's not going there either. Jesus assumes our oneness would have an observable aspect and would be a means of belief for those who do not know him. Going back to that initial story of of what I long to belong to, I I remember those early days in college when when the Lord was starting to woo me to himself. I had a very close friend who had just become a believer. And I remember seeing him with his new friends in Christ, visiting him at college, and I'd see him in his campus ministry. There was this glory among those kids. They were not perfect. They were not sinless. But they were free in a way I had never seen before. And they had a joy that I had never seen before that made me so thirsty and hungry for what they had. It was as if they were all seeing the same thing that I could barely see. But the more I saw of them and how they lived and how they loved, the more I wanted to see what they were seeing. My dad's been coming here f- for a few years now. Every, just about every time I preach, he's not here this morning so I can talk about him a little bit more. And my dad has been a Catholic his whole life long. You know, my dad cannot believe what we have. He, he stands in awe of, of this church. He loves coming here. He's gonna, he wants to come to the picnic. He doesn't care if I'm going to preach or not. He, he, just wants to be, he just loves being part of this place. He's an hour away. He's 84 years old. He can, has a really rough time walking and he loves being with you people. He sees something in you that he wants more and more and more of. And you know, sometimes I don't think we can see it. We get so used to it. But it's beautiful, folks. It's real. It's not just hypocrisy here. The songs we sing this morning, the the voices you lift up. Yes, there's, there's imperfection there. But there's born again voices singing to the God they see. And it is a beautiful thing to those who are being drawn to him. You know, as I anticipated this message last week, I anticipated this long proclamation of our need to be on mission to the world and talking about all those enterprises we need to engage ourselves in and all the things we needed to do. And what I was surprised, and I I don't want to give up on that and cowardly close my eyes to that or lazily do so, but what I was surprised as I meditated over this text is how closely tethered this passage, this prayer, keeps me tethered to our oneness as the means of our mission. That it, it keeps, it kept calling me back to our oneness as the means of the mission. I, you know, I, I want to talk about, we need to get on the street and evangelize, and we need to have our care groups do these different things, and we're going to explore some of those things. I, But it's almost like I want to insist that it will be my evangelizing or my gospel-infused conversations or my missions trips that will provoke the world. It's going to look like this. But Jesus in this prayer kept drawing me back to seeing his glory, which leads to a oneness, which leads to a witness. And I kept trying to skip over glory and oneness and get to witness in my heart and mind. That's not what I see in this prayer. The tone I find in this passage is that a church must and will absolutely by default be caught up in a real witness when they really behold who Jesus really is. They will really be drawn to each other and others will really be drawn to them. I love what some of you guys are doing right now to extend the love of Jesus into this world. I love Bob Groves' passion for evangelism and I'm trying to do my best to go out with him sometimes when I can. He is such a gift to this church and his passion for that. His concern that people are going to hell and that we need to care about that. It is a gift from God to this body. I love what Kyle and Danny's groups have done to, to reach outward and what David's groups does to, you know, the Adams, Lyndon, David's And I could mention so many more things. I know Pam and missions trips and, and there is no critique. There's no qualifying, but we need to. No, no, no. It's just this prayer. It says to me, just like water will not come out of a hose if the sprocket at the top is turned off. So it seems to me that Jesus is most concerned in this prayer about what we see of him before he's concerned about what we do for him. There's a false dichotomy that can Impede on that Things we do for him do unveil our eyes to see him And they can lead to more fruit It's a delicate balance here But this idea of seeing jesus This is the way he starts and ends this prayer And, and it is It is the hardest thing and the most exciting thing for me to try to Articulate to you this morning is the close here Verses 24 through 25, where I think we see this. Jesus says this. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. So that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known. Listen. I will make your name known. Why? So that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. This prayer ends where it begins. An appeal for us to see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. But here, what is that glory? Look at verse 24. Lord, let them see my glory. For you loved me. Let, you see, let, let them see my glory. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Look at verse 25. Lord, I will keep making your no- name known to them. Why? So that the love with which you love me may be in them. Do you, do you see this? Jesus is... I, Lord, help me. Jesus is describing the glory of God... As love from the Father to the Son seen and proclaimed into our hearts into the world. He is saying that as much as we see how the Father loves the Son, we are seeing His glory. We are being caught up in the heart of God. Now, at the start of the prayer, God's glory has a different shape. Speaking of the humiliation of the cross jesus prayers in the beginning of this prayer The the hour has come the hour of the crucifixion glorify your son that your son might glorify you The prayer was that god would be seen through jesus death on the cross Lord give us grace to see this the prayer then was that god would be seen He would be glorified through jesus death on the cross but here at the very end of the prayer, it's that God would be seen through his love for the Son. Jesus' death on the cross shows God's glory. The same prayer for glory, the Father's love for the Son. What, what, what do these things have to do with each other? Jesus' death on the cross, God's love for his Son. You'd almost think they were antithetical, right? The more God loves his Son, the more he hates his Son having to die a horrible death. But Jesus is putting them together. Your glory is in me dying for the world. Your glory is in how much you love me. What's the connection? That's what I I kept all day yesterday. It was just gnarling at my soul. Like, I just don't, what is it, Lord? And I think by God's grace, I hope that I have seen it, and I hope I can communicate it. The Father is about to send His Son to die the most horrible, unimaginable death for our sins, to bear His wrath. And yet Jesus says, Your glory is the glory, my glory is the glory of the love you have for me. Here it would seem that Jesus is telling us that the Father's love for his Son has led the Father to lead his Son to Calvary. Here it would seem that the Father knew that the the brightest, truest glory That he could bestow upon the son. That the son could project to the world. Was this supreme sacrifice of selflessness. Out of love for his father. Taking our horror upon himself. Here it would seem that the father knew. That the path of truest glory. For his son. Was becoming our sin, and by that becoming our Savior. And he loved the son so much that he said, I'm going to make you their Savior. Son, I love you so much. I'm going to show them how amazing you are, how humble you are, how good you are. I love you so much. I want them to see how much you love me how selfless you are how much i mean to you and how much they mean to you here it would seem that out of love the father gave his son the honor of the crucifixion gave his son the glory to be holy god laying down his life for sinful man for the sake of the father who sent him and so now as philippians 2 tells us it is in love That the Father exalts the Son, the Son who humbled himself to death. That now the Father exalts that name above every other name so that every name, everyone in the universe would bow the knee to that name. In heaven and on earth, every knee would bow to that exalted Son because he humbled himself unto death. That God now bestows the glory above every name on his Son. And remember that phrase, that every knee would bow. That phrase is reserved for only one person. That phrase in the Old Testament is reserved for Yahweh. Isaiah 45 23 through 24. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness, and I will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow. Every tongue will swear allegiance and they will say of me only in Yahweh are righteousness and strength. What does God say? He says, through the pathway of the cross, I declare to the world that you, my son, are God. So that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. They did this. The father did this out of love for his son. And the son said yes out of love for his father. I am running late. Can I please have a couple more minutes? In immeasurable pain, despite it, for the sake of love of the son, the father gave his precious son to us despite immeasurable pain for the sake of the love of his father, the son gave up his precious life over to death for us. They did this to show that what is at the core of the glory of God is love, selfless love. Infinite majesty, almighty power, unthinkable might, absolutely. Wrapped around agape love. And now Jesus says, may this love between us so capture the vision of my people that they love with that same love. To be caught up in that beauty. That beauty, if they're caught up in it, it will transform them. And in transforming them, it will provoke the world around them. Can you show this, Brando? This is last night on our street. This is when I felt like God said, okay, Albert, this is... is and play it. Well, maybe we can't play it. Last night, Marie and I were were playing in the backyard. We saw hints of this amazing sunset. We had to run to the street to see all we could, and it was breathtaking. Couldn't do it justice. Clouds dazzled with radiant shades of pink and gray and orange and gold set ablaze against the sky of blue and white. As I processed the beauty, I had a sense that I was seeing something for this morning. And what happened in the sunset, well, it's what always happens, right? But I was struck at how connected with this passage. Though the, the sun last night could not be seen directly by Marie and I, we were in the world. On the ground. The light of the sun was being reflected in these clouds in the most dazzling, glorious way, and they were lit up like fire. But these clouds, they had no real beauty of their own. It was all derived from the sun that the clouds could see that Marie and I couldn't. It was all dependent, so to speak, on their line of sight with the sun. As long as that line of sight between cloud and sun was unimpeded, The clouds were set ablaze with the glory of the sun As soon as that sun ducked beneath the earth's curvature such that the line of sight was blocked And those clouds could no longer see the sun They became colorless dead and gray a beautyless vapor that was barely visible The entire role so to speak in the sunset of the clouds A role they were brilliantly suited for was simply to stay in the path of the sun's light and as long as they did this, they were, they were ambassadors and witnesses of the beauty and power of the sun. Marie and I on the earth below, in the world, were awestruck by that beauty, even though we couldn't see the sun directly. Of course, you can see the point, I hope. From the beginning to the end of this prayer, Jesus' plea is centered in the implication of one major plea, that his people would radiate the glory of God as Jesus has revealed him. These men, just like us, had nothing, have nothing to offer in themselves. And they have nothing to offer the world in themselves. But if they can keep the line of sight with the glory of Jesus and his Father, they will be filled with that light. They cannot help but radiate and be ambassadors for that sun. So these apostles and us will not be able to be but glorious radiation of the glory of God and his goodness to a world that desperately needs him. The clouds would be fools to think they could produce beauty on their own. They would be fools to think they could find it besides anywhere else but that sun. And so we would be fools to think we could find the glory to be a witness to the world from anything else but by beholding the glory of God and the sun. May the Lord bless his word to your hearts. May something of what I've said be nourishment to your souls this morning. It has been a pleasure to preach through this upper room in this prayer.